There's an ancient Christian tradition, and we did it last week, and we did it every year, and we do it on Easter, and that's kind of a shame. It's almost like you, you wish you could sing uh, Christmas songs at other times of year. So let's try it again this Sunday. I'm going to say, He is risen, and you're going to say, He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. What do we do now? We've had Palm Sunday, we've had Good Friday, we've had Easter, and He is risen. We have eternal life. He has conquered sin and death. Conquered all of that. He will return, as He promised, bringing with Him new heavens and new earth. And we'll get new glorified bodies. How about that? Right now, we've got born-again souls. Eventually, we're going to get born-again bodies when he returns in glory. But I don't know about you. I still had to pay my taxes. I still had to apologize to my wife. Some of you still had to take exams, and still do. Did I hear an amen? What's wrong with you? There's one, some egghead, probably. And Sorry, just kidding. Still had to go to soccer practice. Still had to go to baseball practice. Still had to do the tournament. Still had to go to the doctor's appointment. Still had to face the diagnosis. So what difference did the resurrection make? What difference did it make? Well, I want to read you just a little bit from a letter a pastor wrote to his scattered, persecuted congregation. James chapter 1. You know, James was a late bloomer. He was a skeptic. And what's really great about the story, he's Jesus' brother, or you could say more technically his half-brother. He grows up in a home with Jesus. As you heard me say in the past, he's looking God in the eye. And he's sleeping in the same room. He's eating at the same table. He's playing with Jesus as a kid. And then someone comes along and and says, you know, you realize that you are going to be called to worship your brother. Now, that doesn't usually go so well. Worship your brother. Worship your sister. No. No. I don't even like my brother or sister. But after the resurrection, he's converted. (laughs) After the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, James is converted to worshiping and following and becoming a disciple of his brother. And he becomes a leader, (laughs) he becomes a leader in the early church, a pastor there in Jerusalem. 
But now, after a series of persecutions, they are scattered, and he's writing them a letter. What's he going to say? What do you say? He is risen. And James himself, I have come to Christ to place my faith in him alone for salvation. And now he writes to his church that's scattered and persecuted after the resurrection. And he says this, James, a servant. That's why this is so important. James, a servant of God and of my brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And now here it comes. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We just sang about that. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, verse 5, chapter 1, let him or her ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he's a double-minded man, unstable, in all his ways. This is James writing and God using James. This is God's word. Now James tells us here that very specifically there's something that we're supposed to do. Young, old, uh, been a Christian for a long time, new Christian, there's something we're supposed to do, but that something that we're supposed to do is based upon something we know. I want you to do something and remember that it's based upon something that you know. And not only that, I want you to ask for something. Do something based upon what we know. And then I want you to ask for something. Something we're supposed to do. Uh, Verse 2, count it all joy when you meet trials. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, let's, let's clear a little clutter and make sure that, that we know what James does not mean. James does not mean put on a happy face, be happy, be smiley, be enthusiastic, no matter what terrible thing you happen to be going through. Put on a happy face. You know, there is a brand of evangelical Christianity that, that, that will tell us, look, unless you're happy, unless you're buoyant, unless you're enthusiastic, there's something wrong with you. You smile and be happy. Christ is, is risen. 
You should be happy. There's something wrong with your faith if you're grieving. You know, I've, I've known people like that, had conversations with them. You know, you don't have enough faith if you're sad, if you're struggling. But on the flip side, another mistake that we can make, and James isn't saying this, James is not saying, be joyful because you are suffering. Yay, suffering! You know, maybe you're like this, I've certainly been like this, you know people like this, they're not happy unless they're miserable. And making everybody else miserable. And seeking to be miserable, and seeking to be a martyr. We've had that in our our Christian church traditions. Let's go into a monastery and starve ourselves to try to get closer to God. That's not what James is saying. Uh, A writer that I read from time to time, his name is Gene Veith, strong evangelical Christian. He wrote a book called The Spirituality of the Cross. And in that book, he talks about how we tend to use God. And we tend to use God. And he says this, the shelves of our bookstores, even Christian bookstores, are full of books that emphasize ways of using God as a means to attain our own goals for health, happiness, and prosperity. The covers of these books make vast and exciting claims, as if by following certain Steps, family problems will disappear. Our bodies will do what we want them to do. Our financial problems will evaporate. All of our nation's problems will be solved and we will be happily ever after. We will be happy. We will live happily ever after. But we all know that the best Christian families still experience conflict. Problems, failures. The most devout, committed Christian may go bankrupt. Have a breakdown or contract a heartbreaking disease. And all of these books accentuate, he says, our sense of of failure. We thought we were pursuing the victorious, happy, joyful Christian life. And so we suppress our failures, we keep trying harder, we present a positive front to the world, and we end up with dishonesty and phoniness. James is so refreshing. And so honest. He could have started this letter in a lot of ways. He could have said, I know you're suffering. I know you're persecuted. I know you're scattered. I know it's tough. And I'm so sorry. No, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He makes us a couple of guarantees, a couple of promises. Look, he says, and he's a pastor writing to a church. He promises you will meet trials and they will test your faith. Promise. That I, I didn't write this. I just took a vow to teach it. 
you will meet trials and they will test your faith. Count it all joy. But point two, we can count it all joy for we, we know something because we know something. We know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. This joy is linked to something. It's not just something we're trying to work up within ourselves. We can count on knowing something in the midst of our trials. We can know this. We will meet trials. They will test our faith. And we will grow. We will mature. Look, James is writing to a congregation that he wants to be disciples, mature, growing. And he says, in a very real sense, this is the first step. You've got to understand how trials work, how suffering works. He wants this church and and the individuals in the church to, to grow. Look, you can't outrun, and you you know this, you you can't outrun trials. You can't outrun suffering. They catch you every time. It doesn't matter how how old you, you, junior high, high school, college, grad school, single, married, old, young, male, female, trials will catch up to you. James says. And one of the first things we've got to understand, and James is saying this in a a very real sense, is trials shatter illusions. Trials shatter illusions. What illusions? That, that, That I'm okay and everything's fine. And I have no problems. All is well. Love what C.S. Lewis says. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I realize when trials and difficulty and stress and tensions and pain come, boy, I, 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 I don't, I, I'm not in control. I'm not self-sufficient. And I don't know that I'm sure I know what's best for me. Because I thought it was this. And now that is gone. I thought it was my friends, and now I have these broken relationships. I thought it was my health. I thought it was my job. I thought it was my marriage. And I realized trial and difficulty and stresses come uh, within the context of all of these things. But we know this. Have you ever had a broken relationship with anyone? You certainly know this if you're married. 
Or let's be frank, if you've been married, or if you're married a second time or a third time. Uh, my wife puts it well, I've said it before, opposites attract and then attack. The very things that I loved in this person before we got married are the things that drive me crazy. The very things that I was drawn to now repel me. And I begin to see who, who I really am. I, you know, the, the first year of our marriage was the, the worst year of my life. It was my fault. I think Cindy would say the first two years... And it was my fault. If you have relationships with other human beings, if you're alive, if you have a job, you understand this. And we need to talk about it. Because James does. The Bible does. The Bible is the most honest book ever written. Let's listen to it. It has much to teach us. We've all experienced, you know, you you may be single or you may be divorced and you you have friends and and friendships break down. And, you you know, maybe you've been this kind of person or experienced this kind of person. You know, the person that lives for others and lives to serve others and is always doing for others but really expects a lot of payback. I'm serving and I'm living for others and I'm doing this for others. Um. Lewis, Lewis is very insightful in these areas, C.S. Lewis. He, he talks about a, a woman who was just like this, and she eventually passed away. And, and um, there's a, uh, a, an epitaph that her family's come up for her. And they set it up, and it, and it says, Erected by her sorrowing brothers in memory of Martha Clay. Here is one who lived for others. Now she is at peace, and so are they. Why are you laughing? Because you know. And you have been Martha Clay, and you've been on the receiving end of Martha Clay. The rest of this letter is wonderful. It's a wisdom letter. James goes on to talk about That's why he does all this talk about relationships. Relationships with older people and younger people and poor people. And how how do you view status and the best places at the the table and and money? And boy, this is another thing, (laughs) James. Your tongue, how you talk to people, how you care for others. James is saying you can know in the midst of trial... that this is a trajectory, it's a path, it's terrain toward maturity. Toward growth. You think of the people you really respect, you really look up to. They are not people that have been protected from trial and suffering their whole lives and, and rescued. They're people that have been through Psalm 23. Why we love that psalm so much. Why we love the psalm so much. You know, I, I, I'm not going to start naming names, but I, I, I can look right through all of these sections and I can look up there and I can see, you know, hey, <laughs> y'all, ought to go, y'all go talk to this person. 
They're evidence of that. You all go talk to this person, that person. Know the congregation well enough to say, boy, you should talk to that. That person is wise. Don't, don't listen to me. Go listen to that woman or that man. They've been through it. They live this. They've lived it. And then finally, something we need to ask for, James says. Something we need to to do based upon what we know. That we're growing. God is growing us and maturing us. But then, this is wonderful. He, He doesn't just say, you know, suck it up, try harder, do this. He says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, he's assuming here all of us do. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without, a, with, without reproach. If you want to think of uh, James in one little cu- couple of words, James is a, is a wisdom book. It's the New Testament Proverbs. What does Proverbs say about wisdom? Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, there's a lot of ways to define wisdom. I'm going I'm to define it this way, if this is helpful. Wisdom is down-to-earth discernment rooted in reverence. It's down-to-earth discernment. Do I do this or not do this? Or how do I handle that or how do I not handle that? But it's rooted in reverence. It's rooted in following Christ. It's rooted in worship. And inevitably, when trials come, well, every time, every time trials come, temptations come along with them. The temptation to frustration and discouragement, to give up, to doubt... And eventually, to blame God. It's your fault. This is your fault. You're not good. And so James, here in verse 5, is not saying just try harder. He's saying drop to your knees, look up, and ask for wisdom. I love that. There's something you need to do, something you need to know, but you really, you you need to drop to your knees, look up, and ask for wisdom. Because these are things that everybody, again, no matter how old, how young, where you are in life, drop to your knees, look up, ask for wisdom, and trust Jesus. Trust him and don't doubt. Yes, we all struggle. He's talking about the temptations that come our way of frustration, despair, doubt, blaming God. I I, I love how John Bunyan illustrates this in the Pilgrim's Progress. He says there's two, two people you better watch out for. Mr. Facing Both Ways and Mr. Two Tongues. Mr. Facing, well, we've all been there. Mr. Facing both ways and Mr. Two Tongues. Kneel. Look up. 
Run to Christ. I've been in so many settings, and we've been in some settings, let's face it, the last few weeks here at Highlands, where we've been in hospitals and we've been at funerals. And we've been with people that have, have just received diagnoses, and we don't know why. But we can count it all joy when we face various trials. Because we know that God is working, and He is there, and He's maturing, and He's growing us. But then he, but don't forget this. Here's the invitation. Ask for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Look up for wisdom. Trust Christ in the middle of it. A few years ago, uh, a woman who, you don't see this very often in that bastion of right-wing politics, the New York Times, but a few years ago in the New York Times... A woman named Kate Bowler, who had just been diagnosed with cancer, just diagnosed with cancer at 35 years old, she says this, and this is challenging and and very convicting. She said, one of the most endearing and saddest things about being sick is watching people's attempts to make sense of your problem. One of the most endearing and saddest things about being sick is watching people attempt to make sense of your problem. My academic friends uh, research it and Google it. (laughs) My hippie friends attempt to find the most healing kale salad for me. My prosperity gospel friends told me to declare that the cancer was over and set myself free. And then she goes on to say, the prosperity gospel has taken a religion based upon the contemplation of a man dying for sin on a cross and stripped it of its call to surrender all. And then she says, this is wonderful. At some point, we must say to ourselves, I need to let go. I need to trust Jesus. He went to the cross for me. Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, there's that word again, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Despise the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then here's this other word again, consider him. Consider him, count him, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. He's saying that because that's going to be, your your temptation is going to be to give up. Your temptation is going to be to blame. The cross, 
that we looked at last week looks like the worst thing that ever happened on earth. You know, as you face your own trials, think of that. The cross and the people that are there looking at it, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. And it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. In reality, it's the best. I'll close with with this. Uh, Earlier in the service, we read Psalm 42. And what better prayer to make your own. I I find this psalm, Psalm 43, endlessly encouraging because it's honest about our struggles and our difficulties and our pains and our temptations. And right in the middle and right at the end, right in the middle, right at the end, as he's praying to God, by the way, he's praying to God and talking to himself, if you'll notice. So if you pray to God and talk to yourself at the same time, that's a sign of good, solid, mental, spiritual health. The psalmists do it all the time. They talk to God and themselves at the same time. And he's praying to God and, and talking about the struggles that, he, that he's facing. And then right in the middle and then right at the end, he grabs his heart. And he preaches to his heart. He teaches his own heart. He reminds his heart. Why are you cast down, my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him. He is my salvation and my God. Make, I have, make that prayer your own. Wherever you are, wherever you come from, whatever your whether it's physical or relational or spiritual, whatever your challenge is. And again, as I look at this congregation, I know many of the challenges. I know, I know. We're with you. Why are you cast down, my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And a prayer like that is made possible by the resurrection. A prayer like that is made possible by the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful letter. We thank you for how honest James is. We thank you that James is certainly called by you to be a leader and a teacher and a communicator. We know that at one time he was a skeptic. He didn't believe. We know he himself experiences great persecution after the resurrection, as does the the people to whom he is writing. They're experiencing great difficulty and discouragement and pain. And he's saying, for a Christian, it's different. Count it all joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces maturity. And ask for wisdom, 
and run to Jesus. He is your salvation. He is your God. We pray all of these things in that that matchless, beautiful, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.